Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today's scripture is is Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw them, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them, new, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Be sure of this, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Thanks, Nathaniel. That takes guts standing up, standing up here to begin with, but then also reading on top of it. So thank you for that. So at my house, there's this, uh, this that's downstairs in our storage um, that's full of really old pictures. And uh, my parents are here this week, and so we pulled out that trunk, and I told them, like, tell me who's in all of these pictures. We're going through some of them. This is, you know, Uncle So-and-so. This is Aunt So-and-so. That's your great-grandfather. That's your great-great-grandmother. And getting all the stories and the names down. And so as I was thinking about pictures this week, I was reminded of another picture I think we have to put up on the screen. There we go. Pictures tell stories. And this picture in particular definitely tells a story. So it's um, taken during rain season when we lived in, thank you, when we lived in Burkina Faso, West Africa, and there had been some work that was being done in our neighborhood. They were, you know, digging up some of the streets to lay some utilities down, and they had put all the dirt back, but it hadn't quite all settled. And then the rain came, and it made things particularly muddy, but I did not realize quite how muddy. Uh, We had some friends that were visiting us, and um, they asked if they could go mudslinging on our four-wheeler. So my brother and I took turns taking them around the block, mudslinging around in the four-wheeler, and on one of my turns taking someone around, I stopped responsibly at an intersection to make sure no one else was coming. And as I stopped, that was an area where they had been digging, so the ground was loose and now it was wet, and all of a sudden, the front two wheels of the four-wheeler started to sink down into the ground, and so we jumped off of the four-wheeler, and as we jumped off, I went so deep. This is actually me crawling out of the mud. It came all the way up to like mid-thigh on me. That's how deep down I was. So I was sinking in mud, and then I'm also wearing my brother's shoes, and I felt his shoe kind of slipping off my foot as I'm deep down in the mud. So I'm thinking, I'm in the mud, my four-wheeler is in the mud, and now I'm going to lose my brother's shoes, and he's going to be mad that I lost his shoes. And if you notice, even further back, you can't quite see it up on the screen, but those are our neighbors that are looking at me thinking that I was the strangest Nansada that they had ever seen. Who goes out in the mud like that? The picture tells a story. Oh, the other part of that story is that when I got back to our house, um, we had lost water. So I couldn't take a shower for quite a while until the water came back. Pictures tell stories. And today we're talking about 
baptism. And baptism is a picture that tells a story. Paul even talks about that story a little bit in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He talks about how baptism is this picture. It tells the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you've seen a baptism happen before, you know that oftentimes it's a person who is dunked underneath the water and then they come back up. It's a picture of being buried, just as Jesus was, and raised to new life, just as Jesus was. Baptism is also a picture that tells a story about how our sins are washed away and cleansed, just like water washes you clean. Just like eventually, that day when I finally got to take a shower, I was washed clean of all of that mud that was all over me. Baptism is also a picture that tells a story of how we enter into God's family. Baptism is that picture that when you come out of the water, it's like this new life that you have in this new family, not just the Wake Park Church family, but the church all around the world and all across time. It's a picture of you becoming part of that family. There's lots of stories that we can see in the Bible of people who, were, who found Jesus, they started a relationship with him, and then they were baptized and became part of the family of God. You see that in Saul when he became Paul, when he was baptized. Philip and the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, when they were traveling around, he found Jesus, and right there, Philip baptized him. He became part of the family of God. Baptism is a picture that tells a story. And that's what Pastor Corey is going to be telling us more about this morning. Dear sister, on the confession of your faith, I baptize you into God's church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been waiting on this day a long time. And so Jordan, upon the profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. John, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the name of the Son. Oh, <laughs> 
heaven and word be baptized in the faith of the church that we have all professed with you. Is he in your heart? Yes. Okay. Based off your confession. Well, you might have guessed that we're talking about baptism today, huh? Uh, Jesus' famous last words, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded them. That's the mission of the church. We realize that, right? That's the mission of the church. Now, many times we get the discipleship part, and that's great. Uh, Oftentimes, the go part is something that we're not quite as good at. But then there's this other part here that says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that if these are the last words of Jesus, then baptism is something that's pretty important to Jesus. And just like we saw in the video today, baptism can be kind of a funny thing sometimes. It rests on this line between earth and heaven. It's a spiritual thing that also is strangely physical as well. You know, when you do a baptism, there are certainly logistics that you have to keep in mind. You have to find water, preferably clean, uh, water that's not too deep or too shallow or too cold, which, you know, we haven't always succeeded in uh, finding water that's not too cold in Silver Lake, have we? Uh, Then if someone wants to be baptized and they're afraid of water, and we certainly saw that up there too, you have to kind of figure out how to overcome that. You know, as much as we would like to make such a significant event in someone's life seem so sacred, there are times, like in the videos, when it just seems more like an ordinary thing. But of course, as ordinary as baptism can seem at times, it's actually a sacred act. In fact, it's one of the most significant things that we can do in the church. And it's been that way from the beginning. When you're baptized, you participate in a ritual that virtually every church throughout all of history, in every culture throughout the world... Uh, that that has the gospel, has participated in. And you can, in fact, you could even argue, maybe along with the Lord's Supper, you might be able to argue between those two things, that it is the most important, the central act of the church. And so if that's important, then we, if it's that important, then we probably should know what baptism is all about. And when it comes to that, there is good news and there's bad news. First with the bad news. The bad news is, is that the Bible doesn't really say a lot about baptism. In fact, in any, any week that I'm giving a, a sermon that tends to be more topical, like, uh, like this week, I always try to find one scripture that can sort of represent in a general way what we're talking about. And, and really, Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is, is about the best that I could do. Okay? We know that Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see all kinds of people baptized in the New Testament when they come to Christ. But what you don't find is an explanation of why we do it. 
That's kind of the bad news. Well, the good news is, is actually there is quite a bit that we can learn from Scripture and 2,000 years of church history. And so we're going to be drawing from both of those to learn about how we should think about baptism. Now, baptism is what we call a sacrament. And I know that's a religious word and uh, and. You know, a lot of people go, well, you know, sacrament, what does that mean? Well, in the Wesleyan church, we describe a sacrament as an outside, uh, or sorry, an outward sign of an inward work of grace. In other words, it's an outward act that we perform that expresses what God has done inside of us. Now, I'm okay with this explanation, but I actually don't think it gets to the heart of why we do this thing called baptism or something like communion or a wedding ceremony, or any other ritual that we do in the church. Now, in church history, a sacrament is an act that was instituted by Christ himself. And so the Catholic Church has seven sacraments, baptism, communion, marriage, last rites, anointing for healing, penance, and holy orders. Now, Protestants, and that includes us, only have two sacraments, and that is uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper and what that means, but the command to baptize comes from the passage that Nathaniel read a little bit earlier, what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And so, the question that we're going to try to answer today is, is why is baptism so important that Jesus would mention it, tell us to do it in his last words? And to understand that, we have to actually understand the role of ritual in a, in a human life life. Okay, now there's something to be said for a church being comfortable, uh, a comfortable place for people to be, a, a welcoming place that doesn't put a lot of barriers in front of new people. So, you know, you want them to be able to understand what's going without a ton of explanation, especially for those who didn't grow up in church and they don't know all of the, the rituals that we have in churches. We want them to be able to understand what is happening in service. And of course, I think we can do that and we can do that pretty well. But rituals, which are things that not everybody knows what they're all about, are also incredibly important for a community of people. And they aren't just ways for us to express our inner selves. Our rituals actually form us into a kind of people. They shape us both as individuals, but also as a community. Okay, so we're going to do some anthropology here. That's just the study of humanity. All right, um, <clears throat> In the modern Western world, we tend to think about humans as brains on a stick. Basically, that's how James K.A. Smith says it. Yes, we have bodies, but what's really important is that we have minds. Okay? And that's how we've viewed human beings, at least in the West, since a guy named Rene Descartes, who was a guy who said, I think, therefore I am. In other words, what, was he, what he was saying is, is, my mind is the real me, regardless of what's happening with my body. And so that's how we tend to think about being human today. And this is typically how we do discipleship as well. When I was in seminary, they basically told me that if you teach people how to think correctly, if you teach them the right things about the Bible, then right living would follow from that. Now, of course, the problem is, is it just doesn't work that way. Uh, <clears throat> That's not how we're wired because we're not actually brains on a stick. Now, of course, our brains are important and having the right knowledge is an incredibly important thing. What we know really does matter. Our brains impact our bodies, but our bodies also impact 
our brains. The fact is, is that we are formed actually more by rituals in our community than we are by our intellectual input. See, our actions shape us more than we realize. In other words, kids learn by acting to imitate people that they trust. And it's only after they learn how to act that they start asking questions like, Dad, why do we do this? Okay, I'll give you a few examples. Okay, how often do you read in scripture or you hear a sermon that tells you something that's really hard to do? Love your enemies. Be quick to forgive. Don't put your hope in material things, but give to the poor. Read your Bible regularly. Seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in day-to-day life. Or it doesn't even have to necessarily be a religious thing. It could be someone just saying, you should get out and exercise for your health. Don't look at pornography on the internet. Okay? And your mind is fully aware of these things. You have that knowledge in your head, and yet it seems like so often we are just unable to do them. Now, why is that? Well, because as much as we would like to think that we learn with our mind, it's actually our body that wears the pants. Literally speaking. Uh, but you already know this already, don't you? Okay, your mind knows that you should eat healthy, but your body says, I want the bacon double cheeseburger, right? That's the way our bodies work, okay? And so then let me ask you this question. Which is the real you? Is it your mind that knows the right thing to do or your body that can't seem to do it? Okay? Now, our natural answer to that is, you know what it is? Well, it's the thought that counts, right? That's, isn't that what we say? It's the thought that counts, okay? Is that the, that's the real you. But, but is it really the real you? I mean, tell that to someone who is starving. Tell them, oh, well, I thought about feeding you, but it's the thought that counts. Which one is the real you? Truth is, it's probably some of both. We are brains, but we're also body. And in fact, Jesus says that, that it's uh, not... What's important is not just what we think, but also what we do. And so there's this passage in Matthew 7 where he tells a parable. He sa- and then he says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the difference between the wise and the foolish is not one who knows, but the one who does. Of course, the Apostle James agrees with this when he writes in his epistle, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now notice what he's saying here is that we learn when we do, not just when we hear, okay? Because our our body matters, Okay, and that's why rituals matter to us. Okay, because our bodies are real, then rituals, the regular things that we do with our bodies, don't just express what is happening, but they actually shape us into a certain kind of person. In other words, we become what we practice. And God knows that this is how our bodies work, and so he gave us things like rituals that are both physical and spiritual to shape how we live as individuals and as a community. Uh, there's a, another a regular ritual that was instituted by God, not by Jesus himself, but actually one that carries over from the Old Testament, and, and we call it Sabbath-keeping. 
uh, setting aside one day a week for worship and rest. Now, remember, this is not some obscure law that's buried deep in Leviticus. This is one of the Ten Commandments. This is one of the ten big ones, right up there with murder and lying and stealing. So it's, it's pretty important to God. But Sabbath-keeping is, is a ritual that we're called to do with our bodies. Now, coming out of COVID, there are a lot of people, uh, self-styled experts, who are trying to predict how the church is going to change and what are the attendance trends. And we even already see some of that. We have days where we're back to pre-COVID numbers, and then we have days where we have about half that. You know, we're just up and down. And so nobody really knows what's going to happen with, with the church. But what we've done over COVID when we've had to shut down or had to adjust for various things is we've, uh, what we've done has really more to do with utility than it does with ritual. Whatever works, we've had to adjust, we've had to pivot, we've had to make do with what we have. And so, so many of the rituals that we do have been disrupted and we've had to find different ways to be able to do them. Now, the, fa- the fear of many people is that, the, is that a lot of people will just get used to watching church in, the, in their pajamas, watching it on the live, str- live stream in their comfy chair with a, with a cup of coffee. And you know, the fear is that they'll continue to do that. And by the way, if you're doing that today, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but one of the reasons... Uh, that the, the rituals shape us is not that they're comfortable or, or is, is because they are not comfortable or easy or convenient or efficient. And that's kind of the point of a ritual. We make them big deals to set them apart from the ordinary things of life. And so, for instance, the command to Sabbath is an intentional disruption of our normal life so that we can internalize what it means to trust God in our everyday lives. It reminds us through repeated practice, the practice of getting up and taking a shower and getting dressed and coming to church and sitting and being with the community. It reminds us through repeated practice week after week to set aside one day a week as holy to God. And so as we gather then for worship, it reminds us that when we come to Christ, that we approach a holy God who deserves our highest praise. And not only that, but it reminds us that we don't just do this alone. When we gather together, we're reminded that we are part of a family. We're part of God's people. And whether we realize it or not, that ritual of setting aside one day a week to honor God and to worship forms us into a particular type of person. And that's why when we set aside those rituals that we have, if you think about people who grow up in church and they get into college or get to be young adults and they get out of the habit, then all of a sudden they start to feel aimless. In fact, some of them say, I start to feel lost. And the reason is, is because our rituals anchor us into to our people and to our purpose. And so when you stop the ritual, it's not that you're just the same person, only you don't attend worship service anymore. Uh, you have the same beliefs, but you just don't do the same rituals. Slowly, you actually become a different person because of what you practice regularly. And so our rituals shape us by reminding us of who we are and who our people are. And that's why we have to be intentional about our rituals. If we aren't, then we will be shaped by unintentional rituals like social media and cable news and all of the countless other ways that we can spend our time. 
And you might think it's the content, it's the stuff that's going into your head that's shaping you, but it's actually just the act of doing it as well that has an impact. Okay, so let's talk about the role of religious rituals and, uh, and what they do. And specifically, what part does the ritual of baptism play in our faith? I want to make three points here today. Okay, the first is this, is that rituals help us solidify what's most important in our lives. They help us solidify what's most important. Now, this is one, rit- one ritual where we see this very clearly is in a wedding. Okay, a wedding is a ritual that binds us to another per- person. Now, because we live in an informal society, there are a lot of people who say, oh, what's the big deal about marriage? It's just a piece of paper. I don't need a piece of paper to tell her that I love her. Uh, but don't underestimate the power of that piece of paper. Actually, the ritual itself, like the ceremony itself, is a more powerful thing than what you might think. You see, it turns out that the commitment that's expressed in a formal way actually makes a considerable difference in our lives. It's long been known that living together in marriage uh, doesn't really increase a couple's happiness or satisfaction with their partner. In fact, much of the reason for this is because when couples live together before marriage, they typically do it for practical reasons, like, uh, like uh, economic reasons, or belief that they have a better chance to work it out if they have a trial run at it before they actually get married. But that's actually not what the studies show. And the reason is, is because while marriage does provide some practical benefits, marriage isn't just a practical arrangement. It's a sacred arrangement that is instituted by God. And so someone, especially a believer, when they go through a marriage ceremony, they solidify their commitment before God and their community, and that ritual actually shapes them into a certain type of person, and it shapes the marriage that happens afterward as well. Now, the same thing is true for baptism. Like it says in the Wesleyan Discipline, baptism does express the work that God has done inside of you. Baptism is a formalized way of expressing your faith in the atoning death, resurrection, uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's essentially what the Wesleyan ritual says. When we, when we do a baptism, I'll usually read from the discipline, and it will say something like this. Baptism itself is not the door to salvation, but an outward sign of the new birth which God has wrought in your heart. It proclaims to all the world that you have taken Jesus Christ as the Lord of your lives, and that it is your purpose always to obey him. Now, the act of baptism, and Abby kind of talked about this, is itself a bodily or physical metaphor that God reminds us, uh, that reminds and expresses what is true about us when we come to Christ. And the first metaphor is this metaphor of cleansing from sin. And this is a continuation from the Old Testament. See, for Jewish people who, they also practice baptism, but baptism was a a ritual cleansing that they did regularly that allowed them to rejoin join the worshiping community after they were made ritually unclean for some reason. Now, for Christians, baptism actually takes a more important uh, role. It symbolizes the washing away of original sin. And so, for instance, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is addressing immorality in the church, and he lists all of these sins that they used to partake in. But then he says this, he says, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed 
Notice that word. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith, br- the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkle, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There you see the, that imagery of water washing us clean, washing our sin clean. And so then let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And the writer of Hebrews there is referring to the washing of baptism and says that that should give them encouragement and hope for the future. And so when you're baptized, you receive a reminder that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are cleansed from your sins. So that's one metaphor. The second metaphor, particularly for traditions like ours who like to dunk people, uh, is, uh, is the symbol of being buried with Christ and raised again to new life. And that's rich imagery. In fact, that's probably my favorite image of, of baptism. Going under the water symbolizes this dying of our old sinful nature, uh, dying with Christ. And then when we come back up out of the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are resurrected to new life. And so we see this in places like Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We also see it in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul again talks about our sinful previous lives that are deserving of wrath. And then he writes this. He says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. There's that theme of dying with Christ and being raised again to new life. And it's not just that we die and are made alive, but we die with Christ and we are made alive in Christ. Okay, and so the point here is, is that coming to Jesus, uh, coming to Christ, doesn't just represent a little tweak to an already mostly godly life. Okay? It's not an incremental step on our spiritual growth. It's the dying of the old sinful self with our old motivations and our old intentions and our old purposes and the sin that, that gives way to this whole new person who is fully anchored in Jesus Christ. There's actually a legend from, uh, from church history that when Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity back in the 300s AD, his army was also baptized. And, but the story says that when they were, they kept their swords in their hands, and as they were put under the water, they actually kept their arms and their swords out of the water uh, <clears throat> when their, the rest of their body went down because they didn't want their sword-wielding arms to somehow become a little bit less ruthless, right? Uh, so they didn't want to be fully baptized. Now, of course, that's contrary to the spirit of baptism, okay? Because every bit of it, every bit of us needs to die, in order to be resurrected with Christ. Okay, so those are the symbols of baptism. The cleansing of sin, the dying and rising with Christ. That's the formal expression of what is most important to us. And it sustains us through crisis. Okay, and that's the first role that baptism plays. The second way that rituals shape our lives is that they form our identity by reminding us of our story. 
Now, it's pretty popular these days to talk about our identity. And it's not that people have never had identities before, but we've just recently started to become aware of how our identities uh, develop and how powerful of a motivator they are in our lives. Most of the time, we're not even aware of how much what we think about ourselves, what we believe about ourselves influences how we live. And what we've learned is, is that our identities primarily come from our story, from our history. But of course, the story that we remember isn't the whole story. You don't remember every detail of your lives, and so you're selective about it. And so our identities are actually formed by patching together various events from our lives. And who knows whether they're just random or they're significant or whatever. But there are some kind of strange details that you can remember about your life, I'm sure. But it's those uh, events that, that shape who you are, and they form this script that eventually you will live out. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of psychobabble, but we actually see that it's true because we can see it in the pages of Scripture. For instance, God forms Israel's identity by reminding them of their history. Let me give you a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18. God says this. He says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Okay, now this is the script that he wants Israel to live out. But then he gives the reason for why they should live that way by appealing to their story. In verse 18, he says, Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That's why I commanded you to do this. In other words, this is your story. You were slaves, you were part of the oppressed, you were once mistreated by people in power, and so now that you have power, let that story drive your compassion for people who are powerless, okay? Forms their identity. Here's another one. In the book of Joshua, the people of God are crossing the Jordan River, going into the promised land. We see this in Joshua chapter 4. And as they cross over, God tells them to take 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River and place them on the bank and build essentially an altar there or a monument there. Now, the question is, is why did he have them do that? Well, he tells us in verse 21, Joshua 4, 21. He, says, he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the, to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now, we might, always, we might think that these tangible physical symbols are not very important things. Uh, in fact, in a lot of ways, we might think that they're just kind of extras in life. Okay, but when you understand how humans work, how our, how our identity is shaped, then we start to understand how powerful these symbols can be in our lives. Not just for people who experience the event, but for people who live generations afterwards. Okay? In other words, wh- why do we have such heated debates about taking down statues in our country? The reason is, is because those statues are tangible memories that we weave, that weave a narrative of our life, our, of our country, that tell us who we are, not just as individuals, but as a people. Okay? They're symbols, whether they're 12 stones piled up, statues and monuments, or rituals that we practice regularly that remind us who we are and what kind of people we are. 
So baptism, as a part of our story, is a reminder of who we are. Maybe you've heard stories of people before who have wrestled with their faith. They were living inconsistently with being a follower of Jesus. But at some point, they remembered their baptism. And then they snapped out of it. They were reminded, this is not who you are. Now, live up to who you are. And the reason is, is because baptism forms our identity. Now, before we move on, I need to... Uh, warn you about one thing, and that is to be very careful about the temptation to fall into what we might call ritualism. Now, ritualism is simply the idea that it's the ritual itself and not the function that's important. And the Old Testament prophets oftentimes accuse the Israelites of this as well. They would worship at the temple but then they would go and they would live immoral lives or they would turn to idols or that they would, would live, uh, they would deprive the poor of justice. And so we see these warnings all the time in the prophets. In fact, we even see it like in the life of Saul where, where Samuel tells him to obey is better than sacrifice, right? Living right is better than just doing the rituals, okay? Or Jesus, when he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, rituals don't take the place of right living, but you do them together. And if you do them well, then rituals can allow us, can remind us of who we are and call us to better living, to live like the kind of people that we really are. In the same way, baptism without obedience is useless. Now, while there are times to do a private baptism, maybe last rites or when someone is passing away, a deathbed uh, conversion or something like that. Ultimately, baptism is a public or a community event. And there are really three reasons for this. The first, it's public because baptism is the single most important event in the life of a believer. Have you ever thought about that before? Your baptism is the single most important ritual, most important event in your life. Okay, it's more important than high school graduation, You could even argue that it's more important than your wedding. And we travel great distances to go to someone's wedding. We, you know, take time off work and all of that. But oftentimes we'll skip baptisms, other people's baptisms. We rarely skip our own baptism. But, But we'll skip other people's baptism without much thought. Now, the second reason that baptisms are are public is because baptisms are an invitation to other believers to remember their own baptism. See, when you attend the baptism of another believer, you should take the time to reflect on your own baptism and what it means for you, what you were like before Jesus, the way he saved you from your sins and is making you into a new person. The final part the rituals play in people's lives is that they bind communities together. As we've said, baptism isn't just an individual ritual. Okay? From the beginning, Christian baptism has also symbolized the entry into the people of God, into the church. <clears throat> now notice what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay? This is a, a, a chapter about spiritual gifts and about unity in the body of Christ. And this is what he writes. He says, just as <clears throat> a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. I think it's so important. And you could say this of the Lord's Supper as well. It's so important for us to place a high emphasis on baptism. Because they are such rich and powerful symbols that tell us who we are. And at their heart, here's what they say about us. Is that we are not really all that great, but we serve a God who is. You see, when we go through the water of baptism, or when we watch a brother or sister in Christ be baptized, and we reflect on our own baptism, we are reminded again that we are the people of God. Not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did for us. And each of us has been welcomed into the people of God after we died to our own way of life. Not because we earned our way in, not because we're really all that great in and of ourselves. We're invited and we are entered into the people of God after we die to sin. Only after we die to our old ideas of success and motivation and ungodly and unloving attitudes. It was only then that we let go of all of that, that we were raised again with Christ. <clears throat> and we can let go of our self-righteousness. And we can let go of our need to, to please other people or seek comfort and success. It's that process of dying with Christ and being raised to new life that frees us. And every time we participate in baptism, we are reminded of that truth. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these tangible symbols <clears throat> that you give us. Whether it's Sabbath or a wedding ceremony or uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism that remind us of who we are, who you've called us to be, that remind us of the grace that you've given us to, to remind us continually that, that we are really not all that great, that we don't deserve to be called your children, that we didn't earn our place in your kingdom. But you, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, made a way for us to be invited into your body to have the hope of eternal life, to be freed from sin and the need to please other people or even just the need to please ourselves. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we think about not just baptism, but our salvation of when we came to you, <clears throat> that we could take the time to remember in a tangible way the grace that operates in our life in a daily basis, on a daily basis. Lord, we love you. We want to be like you and we fully realize that that takes dying to ourselves and allowing you to live through us. And so I pray that we could all do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.